This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We hope this hour to speak with a member of Colorado's congressional delegation after this morning's shooting in the Washington area. In the meantime, a story from here in Colorado. It's about the relationship between people and bears. When bears get a taste of food people throw away, do they really get addicted and have a hard time going back to berries? It's one of the questions a six-year study of Colorado's bears sought to answer. On the phone with preliminary findings is wildlife research biologist Heather Johnson. She used to be with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, where she was instrumental in this study. Now she's at the U.S. Geological Survey. And welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You were literally crawling into caves with hibernating bears. What was that like? It's pretty exciting. You never really know what you're going to get. You never know what kind of architects these bears are, what kind of den it's going to be, how big the space is. We have some dens that have multiple chambers. We have some dens that are just teeny tiny, just hardly big enough for a bear to squeeze into. So you never really know. So it's always a little exciting to try to crawl into a space with an animal that's bigger than you um, in the dark. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You talked about bears being architects. Gosh, it's almost like they are birds building nests. In other words, there's some sense that they are crafting the environment. Yeah, I mean, a lot of our bears are excavating these dens um, out from underneath a boulder or under a tree or, you know, something. So so they're digging out uh, a space for themselves. So, yeah, they are definitely kind of builders and architects in what they're doing. Sometimes, you know, some are better than others. We have some dens we crawl into and, man, it's in the spring, it's wet and it's dripping and there's puddles of water in there and the bear is soaking wet and, um, you know, that wasn't probably such a good, such a great design. <laughs> and, then, and then other dens that are great and dry and, yeah. Well, yeah. Were, you, were you concerned at all uh, in entering those spaces about, you know, like the observer affecting the observed, somehow disturbing the balance? Well, what happened is the bears heard us usually coming in, we're usually crunching up through the snow and uh, we try to be as quiet as we can, but usually by the time we're there and looking into the den, um, the bear's, her head's up, she's looking at us, and she's shivering, trying to get her body temperature back up to kind of where it usually is, right around ours, 98, 99 degrees, so that she can react faster. So that's kind of usually, she's usually looking at us, kind of wondering, you know, what the heck are you doing here? Because it's, um, they've just been in that space all winter long, undisturbed. And sometimes bears are super sleepy when we get to a den, and just hardly even move and when we uh, stick them with the jab pole. And, and other times they're pretty excited by the time we get there and they're popping their jaws and swatting at us. So again, that kind of all adds a little bit to the uncertainty of, of that kind of field work. And what did you say poking them with what? A jab pole. So um, some people think that when we go to visit these bears, in their dens that they're just asleep hibernating. But as I said, you know, these guys, they, um, they respond pretty quick. And, and so to work the bear safely and um, be able to collect the data that we need to collect, we um, immobilize these bears using a jab pole. And it's about a six-foot pole with a um, needle on the end that has some drug loaded so that the bear can be asleep uh, while we process it. Ah. All right. That's a picture of, of some of the work that you have done. And very briefly, what kinds of bears are these that you're working with? Black bears. Black bears. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's all we have in Colorado is black bears, although most of them are brown. Um, okay. In Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little confusing. Most of the bears, especially in the southwest part of the state, are, are brown, but but they're, they're technically black bears, and that's all we have. So 
Is there some sense that bears are more apt now to prowl urban neighborhoods uh, because they become addicted to food in trash cans? Yeah, so we collared a bunch of bears. We really focused on adult female bears and put GPS collars on them so we could track what they're doing at a really fine scale and, and get locations from these bears every hour throughout the day, throughout the year, and really understand exactly what they're doing and how they're using both human development and then natural habitat. Um, And from that, what we find is that perception that once bears discover human food, they'll always use it and they'll always go back to it. That's not really how it's working for these bears, that they're making pretty complex decisions about how to use the landscape. It looks like bears would definitely prefer to use natural foods if they're available, but when um, natural foods in the forest are pretty scarce, they'll absolutely use human foods as a source of subsidy. And they'll use those foods, and then they'll switch back when they have natural foods available to them. That's the critical um, aspect here, is that they'll switch back. So it's not yeah. that once a bear has tasted people food, uh, and I mean the food belonging to people, not eating people, um, it's not like they can't go back to berries or something. No, exactly. And it, and it looks like bears, you know, they see this we think of it as this forage risk trade-off. They're trying to get all the food resources that they need to survive and reproduce. And when they can get those resources that they need in natural environments, that's definitely preferable because it seems bears do perceive some risk associated with foraging around people. Ah. You know, they switch they switch to foraging at night, you know, trying to avoid people. You know, we see things that bears do because they it looks like they perceive some risk with that. I want to talk about your research, particularly in Durango. Uh, So you looked at human and bear interactions there and how a reliance on people food affects bears, especially in lean years. There was a big food collapse in the time that you studied these bears, I believe. What, What did you learn from studying Durango? So we looked at how the bear population size changed over the course of our study and Again, bears aren't really relying necessarily on human food, but they're using it for subsidy, you know, during those times when when they need it. And, and so what we found was in the female portion of the bear population, we saw a 57% decline after 2012. And 2012 was the year that we had a major food shortage uh, around Durango and in a lot of places in the state. And so what happened is we had a really hard late freeze in June and then followed up by a um, severe drought over the summer. And that meant that there was there really just wasn't any mast available for bears, and, and by that I mean um, berries and acorns in the late summer and fall. Mm. And so, what we see from our behavioral data is that bears really came to town, started trying to use those human foods for subsidy, but they also I, I love this be... word subsidy. By the way, you think of like <laughs> government subsidies, but you're talking about <laughs> supplementing their diets with people food as a subsidy. But anyway, you so you saw yeah. you saw that effect in Durango, and then we we see higher mortality rates. We saw really high mortality rates of our collared female bears. We generally saw higher rates of bear mortalities in our study area. Well, now, why would that be? Why would the bears coming to town be dying off at a higher rate? Yeah, places around human development are pretty dangerous for bears. They they suffer higher rates of roadkill and vehicle collisions, various accidents. We have lethal conflict removals. Often they're more susceptible to being harvested during the fall hunting seasons. So generally, being around people is a pretty dangerous place for bears to be. No wonder they make the calculation that there's risk involved in chasing people food. 
And yeah, this, this, and what's I think what's interesting too about you know this population decline is wild bear populations which don't have these human pressures. When those kind of populations experience these food shortages, we don't see this population level effect. Huh. Um, usually, we see a little reduction in, in reproduction. But generally, bears are really resilient to natural food shortages. They tend to just survive and and um, forego reproduction to you know to have babies another another year. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about bears in Colorado, black bears, and a long-term study of their behavior, especially as it relates to people. We're speaking with Heather Johnson. She's now with the U.S. Geological Survey, but had been with the Colorado Department of Parks and Wildlife. What did studying Durango tell you about bear-proofing, which is really critical in mountain and forest communities? Yeah, so as part of our study, we wanted to see, you know, what management strategies were going to work to reduce bear-human conflict. So we did this giant bear-proofing experiment. Colorado Parks and Wildlife has really encouraged folks to bear-proof and, and encouraged folks that if you re- reduce the human foods available to bears and do that around town, that we should reduce bear use of town and reduce conflicts. But no one had really put that to, to the test, okay. um, especially in a real community, in a real town. Folks had done some bear-proofing studies in places like national parks. So we deployed over 1,100 bear-resistant trash cans to two different treatment areas in Durango, and then we had two control areas. Ah, without those bear-proof trash cans. Exactly. And we wanted to see how effective those containers were at reducing conflicts. And? Um, Drumroll, please. And? (laughs) Yeah, and so after four years of looking at the differences, we we see a huge difference. We see that those um, treatment areas that received the bear cans had less than half the number of conflicts as the control areas. Wow, less than half. So that's that's statistically quite significant. I I wonder if one of the lessons here is um, if you ever, like, get news that bears are having a rough year food-wise in nature— don't have the thought in your head that you can help supplement their diets. That actually would wind up being a pretty bad decision. Yeah, we want to kind of break bears' association with people and food. Sometimes bears are going to go through rough patches with natural foods, and and that's, you know, bears like all wildlife, they deal with variation in natural food conditions. But we don't want bears to be learning and getting used to coming to human development and, and coming around people and people's homes to find those extra food resources. Yeah, uh, and when, when they do, the... they ought to meet bear-proof trash cans, I think Durango proves. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Like, yep, and, that if, and what we're seeing with you know, these preliminary analyses is that, again, you have this kind of trade-off where if you can reduce the forage benefit for bears in town, but you keep risk high. There's still lots of people and dogs and all these things bears don't like. You might be able to tip this balance where it's just not worth it for a bear to forage in town. Um, I want to wrap up with one more kind of human-bear interaction, and it's not a direct one where a bear and a person meet on the street. It's the interaction between anthropogenic climate change and bears. What can you tell us about how climate change might be affecting bear health or bear behavior? Well, we haven't been looking at climate change per se with our study, but we have been looking at the effects of different weather conditions and variation in weather and and how that influences bear behavior. And one of our key findings from our preliminary analyses is that weather and, and particularly temperature is really important in driving bear hibernation. And so what our results suggest is that for every about one degree, this is Celsius, increase 
in winter temperatures that happens over time, that what we see in our study area is that bears hibernate for six days less, almost a week less. And what does that mean for a bear, that that they hibernate less? When bears hibernate less, it means they're active more and they have more opportunities to interact with people. So, you know, that's kind of the big point. If bears are hibernating less, both because temperatures are increasing and they're using more human foods, um, both of those factors we see kind of conspire to um, mean that bear hibernation is shortening. And what that means, you know, for us largely is that that we're going to have more interactions with bears. And therefore, the need for bear proofing uh, increases exponentially. Heather, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Heather Johnson is a research biologist formerly with the Colorado Department of Parks and Wildlife. She's now at the U.S. Geological Survey. And we talked about her long-term study of human-bear interactions in Colorado. CPR and NPR are following breaking news this morning about the shooting of a congressman and others in the Washington area. Now, though, let's focus on the Colorado legislature and a look at whether partisan divisions affect its productivity. In Colorado, Democrats control the House, Republicans the Senate. Not too long ago, researchers named it the country's most polarized General Assembly, and they made some dire predictions. You have a divided state house, um, and what that means is that you know, both sides are going to put up extreme legislation that the other side does not want. Uh, and in that case, kind of polarization leads to gridlock and policy paralysis. That is Boris Shore of the University of Houston on Colorado Matters just before the legislature convened in January. Well, we wanted to follow up on that claim for you. Seth Maskett has dissected the past session. He's a political scientist at the University of Denver. He recently wrote an article on his findings about political polarization for the outlet Pacific Standard. We should say that Maskett was a delegate to the 2008 Democratic Political Convention. And uh, Seth, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So fundamentally, was Boris Shore right in his prediction that polarization would necessarily lead to gridlock? Um, in this case, that doesn't seem to have borne out in, in Colorado. Uh, the Colorado General Assembly actually had a pretty productive session, um, uh, despite a, a lot of the, the barriers that he was suggesting. What makes you say that? Give us a few examples that, well, yeah, they give you the sense that there wasn't a lot of logjam. Yeah, so an, a number of issues that were really stymieing the state legislature back in 2016, uh, hospital provider fee, uh, dealing this with... This was a funding mechanism that had to do with Tabor, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Correct. Um, there was also talk of switching to a presidential primary that they were having trouble dealing with last year. They uh, successfully made that transition this year. Uh, there was talk of dealing with a uh, construction defects law, which uh, many complained was, was hampering certain types of construction. Um, that They had a hard time passing that last year, and it went nowhere, and they managed to get that together across partisan lines this year. Um, so and it, it, was, it ended up, uh, you know, the governor praised it as probably the most productive session of, of his time as governor. Um, and, you know, really just, you know, evidence suggests that it's, it, they were actually able to get a good deal done this year. Yeah. And again, these were issues that in past sessions had perplexed and vexed lawmakers. Uh, Democrats control Colorado's House by a margin of 11 seats. Republicans have a one-vote majority in the Senate. 
But in naming Colorado the most polarized state in the country or legislature in the country, Shore, who we heard from in the introduction, measured some other factors. It wasn't just a question of majority-minority. Correct. I mean, he has uh, an incredible uh, data set uh, going back about 20 years, looking at pretty much every roll call vote cast in every state legislature. And he's able to use that to calculate um, what we call ideal points, basically just a, a rough mathematical estimate as to how liberal or how conservative every state legislator is. And if you just look at the the differences between the typical Democrat and the typical Republican in each of the states, um, we find that that gap is right now the biggest in Colorado. That is, you, you have the, the most liberal Democrats, the most conservative uh, Republicans. Uh, for many years, California was the, the most polarized legislature, and Colorado has been edging up and just recently surpassed them. Mm. And uh, he made some uh, assumptions or predictions about pr- productivity as well, didn't he? Um, yeah, it was just it, it seems to make some sense that when you have, uh, you know, you have parties that are that far apart ideologically and particularly when you have divided government, um, you're going to end up in a situation where the parties simply can't agree. Um, you know, any any type of thing that would get b- before the governor's desk would require some type of compromise across party lines. Um, so in this case, it was it was rather remarkable that they were able to uh, to get that much passed. Yeah, and he and he did do past measurements of productivity as well. That is, I guess, bills introduced versus bills passed. Correct. And there's a number of ways of measuring this sort of thing. Um, that's not necessarily a, a perfect measurement. There are a number of states, uh, you know, for example, in, in Minnesota, they uh, a great many bills are introduced that ultimately go nowhere, but they're incorporated into larger pieces of legislation. But it's it's a pretty decent measure for just making comparisons across the states. Okay. Well, with all of that, did something change? I mean, could Colorado be less polarized than when it was measured or what? Well, I think part of what happened uh, was uh, simply some very creative leadership uh, by uh, both the, uh, the the State House Speaker, Chrisana Duran, and the, the President of the Senate, uh, Kevin Grantham, um, who I think really wanted to make sure that the previous year's uh, uh, inactivity and gridlock weren't repeated. Um, they had really staked out publicly from the beginning and they came together for some public events saying, this is what my caucus will accept. This is what my caucus will not accept. Uh, they worked with the governor to come up with a, a pretty serious agenda for what they were, they thought they'd be able to, to, to do. What does that tell you about the role of leadership, even in very polarized legislatures? Um, that leadership can be very important um, and really vital for uh, getting through the sorts of, of compromises that are necessary when you need to work across party lines. Now, I will say both sides in this past session in Colorado's legislature did run highly partisan bills. And this happens really every year, even though they, they know they're unlikely to pass. Republicans proposed a measure this year that would have required doctors to offer patients considering abortion the chance to see ultrasound images and consider alternatives like adoption. Democrats proposed a bill to let people change their gender on birth certificates. So, uh, again, not a measure of bills that passed, but that, too, demonstrates a certain amount of polarization, doesn't it? Oh, well, certainly. Um, and Colorado is a legislature where it's it's fairly easy for, uh, you know, almost for any member to introduce a bill. 
Um, you know, the question after that is, you know, where does it go? Does it end up getting commanding the support of uh, their party's leadership? Does it end up uh, even if it passes in that chamber, does it survive in, in, in a visit to the other chamber? Um, you know, a lot can get proposed, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's going to go anywhere. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is political scientist Seth Maskett. We are bringing full circle, coming back to a story we brought you some months ago about Colorado's legislature being one of the most polarized in the country. Uh, now that session is over... Uh, we are looking back at its productivity, at uh, lawmakers' ability to compromise. And Seth Maskett says that polarization did not necessarily lead to a legislative logjam. Do you think that this session is a fluke? <laughs> well, it's certainly unusual, but I think it's, uh, it sets a model for future years. Um, and I think a model for other states uh, possibly even the Congress, although we'd have to see about that. But um, yeah, I, th- I think it's a uh, it's it's an interesting model, and I, I imagine uh, legislators will be trying to uh, follow up on that success for uh, the next session, which of course will have uh, basically the same membership in the, mm. in the houses, and yet much closer to an election. So maybe that has something to do with this. That's certainly possible. Um, one of the things that this session had uh, to its advantage was that there wasn't a pressing uh, election coming up. Um, it was possible for uh, members to be associated with some compromises with people of the other party, and voters wouldn't necessarily have that immediate in their mind uh, come the next uh, primaries and, and the next general elections. That will be a, a uh, possibly a little more of an impediment to compromise in uh, 2018. I'm glad you mentioned it just a bit ago, Congress, because you've got their uh, Republicans in control of the House, the Senate, and of course, the White House. Uh, but if you compare and contrast Colorado's legislature to uh, what's going on on Capitol Hill in Washington, there's a big difference in terms of productivity, even with one-party rule in D.C. Yeah, you, you have a number of things working against uh, more productivity in D.C. I mean, one of them is that you have a number of these uh, impediments like the filibuster, um, where even when a party uh, controls every branch, uh, that can really slow things down. It can make it much uh, harder for um, a party to to get a lot done. So we saw, for example, uh, the Democrats had a when they had unified control of, of the federal government in 2009. Uh, there were about nine months in there when they had a filibuster-proof majority in the in the Senate. Uh, healthy majority in the House. And that was actually a very productive time in D.C. It was unusually productive. Um, and they, they managed to pass a lot. The president signed a lot. Then as soon as they lost their filibuster-proof majority, things slowed down. And then we, we returned to the, the, the kind of uh, status quo of gridlock uh, pretty soon thereafter. Um, I think also the, the media environment might be somewhat different. Um, the Congress obviously gets a lot more media attention than state legislatures do. Um, and that can be both a benefit and, and a hindrance mm. uh, to getting things done. In particular, it's, it's possible really in D.C. to build a career right now out of obstruction, um, out of just being the person who stands in the way of legislation. I, I don't think it's, it's as easy to do that within a state legislature. Very briefly, one difference between Colorado's legislature and the U.S. Capitol is that 
Colorado's lawmakers meet for only a few months a year, Congress, while taking substantial breaks, is in session really year-round. I think that makes a difference. Well, yeah, they have, uh, you know, like many state legislatures, uh, Colorado's General Assembly has a deadline. You know, they can only be there for 120 days. Um, occasionally, a governor will call for a, a special session later, but that's yeah. that's pretty rare. And so, you know, they know that they just have a finite time to get a certain number of things done. And it's really up to the, the legislative leaders uh, to decide just what those key priorities are and, and what they're going to put on the calendar for when. Thanks for being with us. Certainly. Thank you for having me on. Seth Maskett is a professor of political science at the University of Denver. And starting next month, he'll head up to use new Center on American Politics. You'll find a link to his article uh, at CPRnews.org that uh, appeared in Pacific Standard. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Music fans from around the world gather in the San Juan Mountains this week for the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. For more than 40 years, the mountain town has hosted some of the biggest acts in bluegrass and other genres. Think Bela Fleck, Chris Thiele, Emmylou Harris, Nico Case. But for spectators, it's tricky to grab a good spot. CPR's Stephanie Wolf went to the festival last year and learned about a long-standing tradition in Telluride to land the perfect seat. You've probably heard of the running of the bulls in Spain. But have you heard of the running of the tarps? It's when Telluride Bluegrass Festival attendees, a.k.a. Festivarians, make a mad dash to claim their spots for the day. And those bagpipes mean it's about time to run. About a thousand Festivarians are in line behind a cattle guard that opens to the festival grounds. They wait for the signal. People rush onto the festival grounds to this bluegrass rendition of the William Tell Overture. And fling open their tarps to claim over a small patch of land. Scott Russell is in the crowd. The firefighter paramedic recently moved to Garland, Texas from Denver. And he has 10 Telluride Bluegrass Festivals under his belt. This is my primo spot because it's in and out of the aisle. It's not so close that it's next to all the dancers. But it's Within minutes, he has his tarp spread out near the sound booth and starts to secure it with stakes. The tarp run has been going on for more than 30 years. How it began is a bit of a mystery. I can't really recall how, you know... How it started, oh, there's, there's legends, you know, the, the solstice topless run has to be my personal favorite. That's Craig Ferguson. He's the president of Planet Bluegrass, the Lions-based group that organizes Telluride Bluegrass. He might be half-joking in that response, because the festival takes place during the summer solstice every year. Ferguson marvels at the dedication tarp runners bring to this event. It's such a charge for to watch it from the stage or from elsewhere. The tarp run has also gotten very competitive. Sometimes there are wipeouts, which have left some festivarians with sprained ankles. And many line up the day before to get a place in line. Scott Russell prefers to wait until sunrise to prepare for the day's run. For him, though, 
It's all about his tarp. In tarp world, everybody else has the vinyl tarps. They get hot as could be. They burn your legs. They get sticky when you spill your beer and stuff. So I got a canvas one, a painter's canvas, because you can lay on it and it doesn't burn you up. He got this canvas tarp in 2008. And then once it was a blank canvas in front of me, it drove me crazy it had to have some art on it. So I just went into town and bought a bunch of permanent markers and threw them out. The tarp is covered in drawings. The older images have faded from hours in the sun. Russell says friends and strangers have added artwork. And there's some of this artwork I've never even seen the people because they've done it while I was gone and came back to see it, which is really interesting. But a a lot of it, they spend their time on the tarp, so I get to meet them all. Often those strangers become friends for the four-day festival. Russell will be back in Telluride this year with his canvas tarp and a fresh stock of markers for anyone to add to the artwork on his tarp. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. Well, now let's hear from one of the bands the Tarp Runners will see in Telluride. Dispatch hit it big in the 90s and early 2000s with their indie rock sound that's tinged with reggae and funk. The band has taken a few breaks over the years, but has a new album. It's called America Location 12. In addition to the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, the band will also headline Red Rocks this week. Band member Brad Corrigan lives in Denver, and he spoke with CPR Stephanie Wolf. Brad, welcome. Thank you. I want to read a description of your new album that I found. Built on tales of struggling immigrants, forgotten veterans, and children cast aside, what was on the minds of you and your bandmates as you put this album together? So many of us that just kind of won the birth lottery can do almost anything we want. And there's so much access that it's super exciting. But as you travel the world and realize it's not the same for... Everybody, actually, it's not the same for most people. It's pretty eye-opening, hopefully in a way that inspires you to use the gifts that you've got to try to serve people who, for whatever reason, are in a place where there aren't any ladders. So there are a lot of issues that I think infused our songs. And as we're recording the record, it was you know right in the midst of the election. And so much was under the magnifying glass, I think, that... The songs, ironically, were written like a year, year and a half previous, but the timing of recording and everything that was sort of orbiting the actual recording of the record infused it with a lot of extra energy and I think, you know, gave us a sense that like, wow, this is pretty significant. So did everything that was going on with the election just give those words, those lyrics, new meaning, or did you actually make some tweaks along the way based on what was happening? We didn't make any tweaks, but it actually... The election and all the craziness and surrealism around it drew out some of the lyrics in a new way. And I'll never forget it. Like I'd been rehearsing the the lyrics because Chad has written so he's so dense in the way that he writes. And it's almost This is Chad Stokes. This is Chad Stokes, yeah. And there's one line at the end of a song called Rice Water that talks about how these kids are gonna be able to climb the wall faster than it can be built. It just gives me chills now to think like That was written well in advance of any wall being mentioned in the media about, you know, supposedly dividing our country or protecting our country from yada yada. Let's actually hear some of the song Rice Water. But keep it tight, hold your head in. There are eyes on the road that'll do us in. And I can't go back again, because we don't even need rice. Like we don't need water, we don't even need eyes, we don't even need God, we don't even need peace, 
Like we don't need laughter We don't even need guns We don't even need words I understand this song is meant as an ode to children in Central America who are fleeing from gang violence. What inspired the band to explore that issue? My bandmate Chad has... He's a new dad. He's got three beautiful kids that are like five, three, and I think two months. So he's got a very um, strong sense, I think, as a dad, uh, looking at the world's kids, almost like he looks at his own. And I think he's always been wired uh, to see inequality and to see stories where kids or families or communities are really up against um, difficult circumstances. But in the last couple of years, I know the images of kids and families jumping up on the top of trains going from, you know, Guatemala in particular in through Mexico to end up in the United States and all the danger associated with jumping on the top of a train, that that's the best alternative for kids, even some of them leaving their own parents, maybe never to see them again, just made it such a real place for him to, you know, draw out a song. Um, and then at the same time for the last 10 years, I've been working in Nicaragua, working with trash dump kids and had never known that there were children anywhere in the world that scavenged through trash fields looking for recyclables. So that at the end of the day, they could sell off what they had found uh, in order to survive. So both of us, I think, have had such amazing and deep experiences confronting how other ki- how a lot of kids are looking at their own adversity and how they're overcoming it. And then for us to realize like how good we have it. There are many songs in the album that explore big social issues, such as the first track, which is called Be Gone. And it looks at the plight of American Indians. Those songs are much harder and louder, but Rice Water is much softer and it starts out very quietly. Why? Well, rice water has a bit of a kind of a surreal start to it, you know, kind of like coming out of a bad dream almost. It's time time to wake up. We're already already underway. underway. Imagining like I can kind of feel this, the the train just leaving and not know. It's exciting and really scary not knowing where the train is going to take you. So I think the song... It has a lullaby-like feel to it. It feels like there's a lot of, yeah, surreal is the only word I keep coming back to, but it doesn't feel right because there's such a deep reality in it. I think there's an anthemic hope that I feel like buried deep in the track. And songs like Be Gone or Skin the Rabbit that have more of a distortion and more of a urgency and more of a drive to them, bring out another side of what songwriting can be about and that's the bluntness of a situation and creating a snapshot with lyrics that may be short but direct and to the point Is there any hope in those songs as well? I think there's a lot of hope in those songs, but I think that you have to first confront the 
the unhealth or the corruption or the historical legacy of something happening over and over again, particularly with the Native American community, and calling that out and just and and putting it there, I think the awareness piece comes before the reconciliation piece. Is there anyone else? Is there anyone else? Is there anyone else who can, who can read my mind? Who can read my mind? Do you feel like the band hasn't really gone there before, as in taking pretty pointed positions when it comes to politics and social issues? I think starting to be on the side of, of parenting just changes things. You know, uh, both my bandmates, Chad and Pete, um, have beautiful kids and their kids are, you know, starting to get into elementary school. And I think for Chad and Pete, they really see the reality of the, um, the choices in front of their own kids. And then through that lens, they can see, my goodness, how many millions of kids have almost no opportunity for a path in front of them. And while I don't have a family of my own, you know, through a lot of nonprofit work in Central America and also on Pine Ridge in South Dakota, that incredible reservation community, I feel like I see so many children that need their stories told. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Brad Corrigan. He lives in Denver and is a member of the rock band Dispatch. The group will play songs off its new album, America Location 12, this week at Red Rocks Amphitheater in Morrison and the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. I want to talk about some of your humanitarian work. You founded the Colorado-based healing arts nonprofit, Love, Light, and Melody, and you decided to launch this project after going to Nicaragua in 2005. Describe what you saw on that trip and who you met that moved you to start this work. I took a trip in 2005 to Nicaragua thinking it would just be three or four days, you know, kind of a feather in the cap mission service trip. And I went there and went to an orphanage and played soccer and guitar with them and thought that this was the bottom of the barrel. But the Nicaraguan taxi driver who had taken me to the orphanage said, can I show you where kids need more help? And I didn't speak Spanish. I had no idea what he was referring to, but I trusted him enough. And he took me into the city trash dump, 110 acres of burning filth. And then seeing a township of 240 or 250 families that had kind of built a life in those trash fields. So to see kids running around barefoot laughing and smiling and playing soccer with like an invisible ball and I'm driving into it, rolling up the windows as fast as I can, thinking I'm at risk. Those kids just completely um, captivated me. I couldn't believe they could smile and laugh. And a little girl named Ileana rode up on her bike and knocked on the taxi window. And because of her laughter, I rolled it down. And she's like, I want to introduce you to my family. And the taxi driver became the translator. And now this little girl is like leading me around. And as long as I'm looking at her, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to make it. And yet she's 13 and barefoot and laughing. And I'm 30 something and looking around thinking I'm about to die. So the courage of these kids, just, I couldn't shake it. And I went back month after month and after 10 or 15 trips in less than a year and a half, 
my entire world from friends, family, fans, they wanted to know how they could help Ileana and those kids. So we founded Love, Light, and Melody and started an annual concert in the trash dump called The Day of Light. Do you still keep in touch with Ileana? She passed away. Mm. She passed away in 2011 and her sister died in 2009. And those two girls were the closest thing I've ever had to daughters. And to see those two girls confronting HIV, you know, AIDS because of being vulnerable and not having parents that protected them from abuse that we would not stand for just has still gives me such fire that those girls died. They're not forgotten. Their laughter and joy and courage is imprinted in me and now imprinted in thousands that have come on these annual day of light team trips. Your humanitarian work is inspired by the people you meet as is much of your music, particularly off of this new album. The song Curse and Crush is a particularly emotional track, and it came together after the loss of a friend who died while working highway crew. We try to understand The right to life like fire to the arson You got it right at last, but then the world had a different plan and took it all away. Well, this one is um, hits as close to home as it can. This is Chad's cousin, um, sweet, sweet Matt Cochran, who we I think we probably met him when he was 14 or 15. And everything was just a little bit like one step in the direction of like, man, can this kid get a break? Like, just struggled with learning disabilities and had a couple of physical disabilities that weren't obvious, but everything was just a little bit harder than it should have been for him. And then confronting depression and addiction as an adult and having difficulty finding work, but always laughing. And whenever he was with us, being really open about struggling, but going, I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it. And then in the last five years of his life had found his way. Like all those lyrics are about someone who had fought so hard to climb this mountain and had gotten there. And then this freak accident, he dies working on the highway crew. So music at the very least allows us to pay tribute to someone that we love. And we run and we gun and we die young. And we curse and we curse and we crush and we hide. haven't yet played it for an audience and I know that at Red Rocks some of Chad's family will be there maybe even Matt's mom and dad and I think that's going to be about as profound and also as hard uh, a song to perform but it is going to be so right I mean I think of Red Rocks as a cathedral in and of itself so that'll be there will be a spiritual weight to that song that we'll never forget Brad thanks so much yeah thanks for having me
Brad Corrigan of the rock group Dispatch. He lives in Denver and spoke with my colleague Stephanie Wolf. Dispatch plays Ogden Theater in Denver tomorrow, Red Rocks Friday, and the Telluride Bluegrass Festival Saturday. We'll take a break and be back with Colorado Congressman Mike Kaufman. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Let's speak now with a member of Colorado's congressional delegation who was not at the baseball field in the Washington area where a shooter opened fire this morning. None of the Colorado members were there during this practice for an annual game between Republicans and Democrats. It's when a gunman opened fire, injuring several people. The president in a press conference earlier said the assailant is dead. And so on the line with me is Congressman Mike Kaufman, Republican of Aurora. He wants to see a review of congressional security procedures. And uh, he's on the phone from Washington. Hi, Congressman. Hi. Uh, First of all, what concerns does this raise for you? What questions does this raise for you? Well, I think uh, on Capitol Hill itself, we have uh, the I think the security is very robust, but what is missing that will have to be reviewed is when members as a group go off of Capitol Hill uh, into greater Washington, D.C. to do something, uh, there isn't security. What was, you know, if, if, if there was one thing that was lucky about this situation is that the, um, the, the top five positions uh, in Washington leadership positions uh, have security details with them at all times. The Speaker of the House, the Majority Leader, the Majority Whip, the Minority Leader, uh, and the Minority Whip, and and that's all. And so it just it was a, it was lucky and sorry that that uh, uh, the the Whip uh, Majority Whip was was uh, shot and he'll he'll recover. It's a great tragedy. But the, but the, the but it had it not been for him participating. There would have been no security whatsoever there, and the casualties which would have been much greater uh, than uh, than we, we we suffered. And so I think that part clearly needs to be reviewed. So a question of whether there needs to be more security offsite for more members. You mentioned the House Majority Whip Steve Scalise, who is uh, reportedly in stable condition. Um, I understand that you were called. Uh, just this morning onto the House floor. I gather that was uh, a briefing about this. Can you just tell us what happened? Well, there was a briefing about it, and then we, we also had uh, the, the chaplain then, lay, then gave a prayer, and um, Speaker of the House uh, spoke about unity, uh, not for members, just for members of Congress, but for the country, and Nancy Pelosi spoke uh, to the same as well. And so it was really an inspiring moment. They certainly went over the incident. We had uh, two uh, police officers or two Capitol Police officers who, uh, again, providing security for the uh, majority whip, Steve Scalise, who who exposed themselves in advancing at the shooter uh, and were wounded. And then we had uh, another uh, staff member uh, that was wounded. And then we had, um, let's see, a member of, of Steve Scalise that was wounded. And uh, there, were, there was a, a lobbyist that was participating yeah. uh, as well that was wounded. Um, 
So you talked about unity for the country. I want to note that the game for which they were practicing this morning will go on tomorrow. And you suggest that Democrats not play Republicans, but that the teams be be mixed up, I guess. Oh, you know, it'd be great to have a, a bi- more bipartisan effort. But, you know, this is a tradition in, in Congress. And I think what will be noted, what will be remembered is the fact that uh, that it's a it's a sign of resilience for the country that that despite this horrible incident that that this game will go on it's a charity game uh it is a, it it goes towards a a charity uh in Washington DC boys and girls clubs uh in the, in the DC area so but uh, but you know i i think it's i think it says something about the country, positive about the country, that that is not being canceled. I, I thought it would be, uh, but but I'm glad it's going forward, and I'll be there. That is Congressman Mike Hoffman of Aurora joining us by phone from Washington D.C. And you've been listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us. I'm Ryan Warner.